Thank you, Nidhi. Uh, and welcome, everyone, to another episode of our podcast, Traveling Time with Books. This podcast is now on Audible, Spotify, and all other major audio platforms. So please feel free to tune in to your favorite uh, audio platforms and find us there. Today, we have the prolific and acclaimed writer Rakshanda Jalil as our guest. Rakshanda is a writer, critic, and literary historian who has written, translated, and edited a diverse range of books. Her PhD on the progressive writer's movement as reflected in Urdu literature has been published as Liking Progress, Loving Change. She also runs an organization called Hindustani Awaz, devoted to the popularization of Hindi-Urdu literature and culture. But most of all, Rakshanda has made an enormous contribution to the world of Urdu literature in bringing to us so many different aspects of the language and its literary history. So no better way to end this introduction than by this share uh, by Bashir Badar Sahab. Wo itradan sa lehja mere buzurgon ka Wo itradan sa lehja mere buzurgon ka Rachi basi hui Urdu zabang ki khushbu ये खुशबू हम तक पहुंचाने के लिए बहुत-बहुत शुक्रिया रक्षंदा एंड थैंक यू वेरी मच फॉर जॉइनिंग अस हियर टुडे थैंक यू निधि थैंक यू कामिनी लुकिंग फॉरवर्ड वेरी मच टू दिस कन्वर्सेशन ग्रेट थैंक यू नाउ गिवन रक्षंदास ब्रेथ ऑफ वर्क वी टेक अ स्लाइटली डिफरेंट अप्रोच फ्रॉम आवर यूजुअल पॉडकास्ट ऑफ फोकसिंग ऑन वन बुक बाय द ऑथर and instead use this opportunity to discuss a small body of books written edited and translated by yudakshanda and that nidhi and i have read uh, so some of these are but you don't look like a muslim and the rebel and the cause written by yudakshanda new writings in urdu from india and pakistan and preeto and other stories the male gaze in urdu which is edited by yudakshanda and the sea lies ahead written by intezar hussain and footprints on zero line written by gulzar sahab both translated by rakshanda now rakshanda you know moving from that because we are discussing context and how we are shaped and literature is shaped by context and context is shaped by literature uh, i want to talk a little bit about your work with urdu so you did your phd uh, on the progressive writers movement which for the uninitiated and put very simplistically was a movement that started in the mid 1930s to transform in some ways the aims of writing to make it more realistic and connected with the lives of the common people now from immersing yourself in the urdu literature of the progressive writers you have covered a huge space to editing a volume now on new writing in urdu from india and pakistan about which you say in the introduction that literary sensibilities develop and progress in tandem with changing times so that they reflect real situations and real concerns and you say also a new literary canon in the process of being formed is to be found within these pages now you are a literary historian so your work is at least partly to situate literature within the context in which it is uh, taking place and emerging so how have you observed the evolution of urdu writing what are the sensibilities of the new urdu literary canon and how does it differ let's say from the writings of the progressives as situated in these different periods of our history if i were to put it very briefly because this is a long answer that deserves a lot of analysis and a lot of context and a lot of background and a lot of specificity 
of names of texts. But if I were not to go into those specifics and if I were to make one uh, sort of sweeping answer to your question, I would say it is uh, that from the progressives who were active in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s to now, uh, the one change I see is that the progressives and that whole breed of writers were that much more fearless. Uh, there was lack of caution. There was lack of political correctness. Um, in the new breed of uh, Urdu writers, let's say, hmm. find a great deal more political correctness. They are still wanting to be political. They are still wanting to make statements. They're still wanting to hold up a mirror to society because that they see as the essential function of the writer. But yeah. somewhere, I think they are wary of how they will be misunderstood. Uh, mm -hmm. Great many, not all, but a great many of Urdu writers now, more than before, uh, happen to be Muslims. Again, I will say not all, because you still have very many Urdu writers who are not Muslim. Uh, the numbers were more, the numbers have declined in the recent years, but there's still enough. But... Uh, since the great majority of Urdu writers, let's say 70 to 80%, happen to be Muslim, there is a political correctness on their part that they do not... I'm talking of India here. I'm not talking of Pakistan. I'm not talking sure. of diaspora. Uh, have, uh, they, uh, let's say they want to talk of communalism, which is a fact of life, which is something that they want to talk about. But they will be careful. We don't see that caution in the progressives. They want to call a spade a spade and they will do so with complete and total confidence in their craft, in their voice, in their, in their right to say so. We see an erosion of that confidence, which in a way, to my mind, is a reflection of society as we see it today, that, that political correctness has taken the place of confidence. That, okay, yeah. wanting to say something, but not saying it with that degree of fearlessness. Very briefly, I would say that is the one major change. And would you say that this change sort of started with partition itself and the changes in India with respect to, you know, the changes for, for, for Muslims in India? Or would you say it's more recent, more I, I reflection more of recent. I would say it's 20 right. 20 odd years. In fact, um, right. uh, you know, since we're having this conversation, I must mention that the book I'm currently working on, which I've almost finished, is um, a, an anthology for HarperCollins. It's, uh, they have an ongoing series in different bhashtas, Tamil, Bangla, Hindi, called Best Modern So-and-So Stories, Best Modern Hindi, hmm. Best Modern Marathi. So, so they asked me to do that for Urdu. And uh, we had this conversation, the editor at the commissioning editor there at HarperCollins and I, and I said to myself that uh, the brief I want to give for this volume would be the best modern uh, contemporary Urdu stories. And I would want to look at the post 90s because as I see it, uh, society is always in flux. Society is not a oh. constant. The literary canon is not a constant. It constantly evolves, changes, you know, there are, it's only inevitable. But sometimes there are moments in time when you can say that these were either a defining moment or a moment when you began to see a noticeable change. I think as a society in India, we began to see a noticeable change from the 90s for various reasons. The economy mm -hmm. opened up, more relevant, yeah. the public domain, various things happened and they, there was a cumulative change. 
So as I look back, I'm born in 1963. I was old enough in the 90s to be able to understand uh, those changes. And now with the benefit of hindsight, I'm able to analyze those changes also, uh, especially in the context of literature and society. So as I see it, those changes that I'm talking about really began to come to the surface in a very significant way from the 90s. So the brief I gave myself when I began to edit this collection of modern Urdu short stories was stories that were post-90s, which means no Manto, no Prem Chand, no Chandar, right. no Bedi, uh, none of these writers that we've all read and encountered in uh, Urdu anthologies. So here we are then naturally going to have some voices which are well known in Urdu, but maybe not so well known outside Urdu. So you're doing two things. You're bringing to the four lesser known voices into English, and you're also bringing to the four concerns of these voices, which are major voices on Urdu, but may not be very well known to English readers. And what are those concerns? They, they can be communalism and the conjoint twin, which is secularism. They can be, uh, you know, uh, how uh, the, uh, nationalism, you know, how, how do people interpret nationalism? Right. Uh, right. Of course, nationalism is a given, but even so, how do they see their place in a society? You know, concerns right. like that. And women, uh, how do how do women uh, figure in these narratives? So all right. of these areas I wanted to kind of knit together and bring them in the form of an anthology that is post-90s. Right. Okay, um, at this point, I'm going to bring Nidhi in because I'm sure she wants, she's, she's bubbling yes. to ask something about Urdu as well. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad for this conversation which just happened because um, while reading, uh, I know there's one chapter, uh, one essay in your book, but you don't look like a Muslim, which is called Urdu, Rest in Peace or Work in Progress. And I've heard videos, um, Rakshanda, and where you repeatedly ask this question, is Urdu a dying language? So one question, of course, from my end was, if not for those big names that you just mentioned, who else is writing in Urdu? And why are we not reading them? You know, I, I looked up um, a little bit about the last Gyan Peter Award for Urdu was given some 14 years back. It seemed like a very long time uh, to me that, you know, nothing else has come in the forefront for a while. But before I ask you the question, there's also a little bit um, that I wanted to share with you about uh, Peggy Mohan, who is uh, an amazing linguistic historian and who was on our podcast last. So we discussed a lot about death of a language with her and this was in the context of sanskrit um but a few lines had stuck with us which kind of so beautifully laid out from a linguistic perspective what she feels so she says that language death is not about the disappearance of the outer form of a language it implies a certain loss of vitality the vitality the languages once derived from having native speakers and by native she means those who speak the language in the first five years of their infancy so then she goes on to say that so we speak of preserving languages so you know in this case um the question that would flow out would be are we preserving urdu so uh, her idea is that when we speak of preserving languages that no longer have native speakers not of letting them go their way confident that they can adapt and grow because all we have of them is a body which is like a handed down that this is the language of it this is the literature 
but a much lower number of people who are speaking it as their first language. And then a beautiful line where she says that languages are like species. They may not decline gradually because something is wrong with them, but suddenly in response to a sudden environment change. And in this context, I think in our current context, it's the influx of English, which is even making our regional languages take a backseat, even Hindi. And in all of this context now, um, what what is your thought on how Urdu is thriving yeah. or so are we Udi, preserving two things here. Peggy Mohan, when she says in the context of Sanskrit, death of a language, um, I think that's a very different uh, scenario from Urdu because uh, for two reasons. We can say that there has been a death of the script we can say that fewer and fewer and fewer people with every generation are now reading Urdu in its script, which is the Rasmul Khat. Um, but I don't see Urdu itself as having died or is any danger of dying out right now. Uh, I know that both of you have a connection with Lucknow. Now, in a city like Lucknow, even the rickshawala or the person selling, uh, I don't know, bhuttas on the street or whatever, is uh, in a sense speaking something which is Hindustani, which is a very sweet mixture of Hindi and Urdu. Right. right? Now, uh, where, unless you sit down as part of an abhiyan or a yojana, weed out systematically words from one language, throw them in some sort of memory dustbin and replace them with what you consider to be very the words of the language that you want to retain. It could be Hindi, it could be Urdu. Unless you do that kind of systematic reading, this is a Herculean task to distinguish the two languages. I see Urdu and Hindi as being sisters born from one womb. You know, there are many, many, yes. many commonalities. The grammar, most important, you know. Uh, what, is, what is a language? A language is both vocabulary, syntax, grammar. Now, the vocabulary uh, is different, but the syntax is uh, same. How do, you, how do you make these changes? Who decides that this is an Urdu word? Aajau, kamre mein aajau. What is this? Is this Urdu? Is this Hindi? Kamra comes from the Portuguese word, actually. You know? But it has come into our spoken language. There's so many words, cheat. What is cheat? Cheat is from the chintz word. You know? <laughs> so many words that we, we think are from one language or we assume to be from one language. When we find out, when we go into the etymology, we understand that they, their etymology belongs to a language that is far removed from the one you had guessed. So right. I would say that the script, yes, is died, but uh, not the language. And the language is increasingly content-driven. So you have these lit fests like Rekta and others. You have right. online uh, events. You have podcasts, each of which, in some way or the other, I think are helping to keep the language going. So I don't subscribe to the theory that Urdu per se, the, the, the language, 
not the script. The script continues to be a very difficult and a very prickly proposition. Yeah. Uh, and I have views on that as well. Briefly, I feel that uh, there are these people who say that, you know, it's a very difficult script to learn. And so let's make do, let's have a plan B in place. Let's read what we wish to in Devanagari or in Roman. Now I'm saying that Devanagari A cannot uh, replicate or mimic uh, many sounds that Urdu has. Why do you want to put a burden on an alphabet that was not meant to produce those sounds like kaf or ghen or so hmm. on? Hmm. The other thing is that publishing industry is dependent on subjectivity, on the whims and fancies of an editor who says, I like John Elia or I like Fez or I like Qalib, so I'm going to uh, publish this, but I don't like Iqbal or I don't hmm. like so-and-so, and so I uh, let's just ignore him. So therefore, the reader in Hindi is only able to find certain things. What of the others? Will that subjectivity on the part of a publishing company or a publishing editor decide for you what you should read in Urdu? Translations can only do so much, you see? So this plan B, I think, is not a good idea. Also, uh, you want to learn Chinese because there is a lot of trade in China. with China. You go to a Chinese institute. You don't tell the instructor that, listen, I want to learn Chinese, but please don't bother with the alphabet because the alphabet is very difficult. So just uh, teach me spoken Chinese. That will take you far, but only so far. You know, right. you, you, you can't do that kind of cherry picking if you are really serious about a language and its literature. Because... Uh, supposing you want to study Chinese literature, but you say, I don't want to learn the script. Hmm. Is that possible? How can we splice, uh, cut away a language from a script? For a casual reader, yes, Roman or uh, Devanagari is the option. But right. supposing you're not a casual reader, you want a more immersive experience. Absolutely. There's yeah. no getting away from wanting to learn the script. Yeah, and I think that's also uh, quite... Uh, you know, important for the language to keep up that for a larger population, um, if it is about the words, you know, there's a certain branding which is associated with Urdu. And I, I can't forget that song which went like Ishkwala love. So it was like love is love. But yeah. when you talk of Ishkwala love, it seemed to imply so much more to these college students who are dancing in the song. And I think there is a certain brand with it. So if the language thrives in pop culture, um purely you know just listening to it uh, or reading it in another script and then for the more serious um reader or writer you have the option of you know actually learning the script um, that itself is a sign of a language which is going to stay vibrant and you know uh, uh nidhi i think the bombay film industry the hindi film industry has done a great deal it's a yeoman service that it has done in keeping Urdu alive. And this is something we don't thank it enough for. We we are very quick to diss Hindi film songs, especially modern ones for their poor vocabulary, or we compare it to the to the great ones of earlier times of Sahil Lodhyanvi and Kefi Azvi, and we say what a fallen standards there has been. But I say that, look at the positives, look at the gains. Hindi film industry has kept Urdu afloat and in currency. Words like gumshuda, I mean, that's an Urdu right. word, but you have a whole song on gumshuda or goyasi I mean, I don't know, you're, you're much younger than me, you may or may not remember this song, 
but there was there was this uh, cute lyric on goa goa ke chonanche you know so picking up quaint urdu expressions and using them in mainstream hindi film songs has been a tradition almost and it continues to be one so whether it's ishqwala love or something else i think the film industry has has kept certain words in currency and also at the same time introduced new words so people who may not know uh, a certain words will pick up those words from the film songs and this needs to be acknowledged right right no you're absolutely right i think um, i i'm totally hearing that point because wherever there is a depth in emotion uh, one can see a lot of songs using a word here there of urdu rather than you know just uh, pure hindi so yeah um, so that that was fantastic to listen to and, and sorry, sorry to interrupt but again mm-hmm. uh, i never failed to point this out and uh, uh, that the urdu shail serves multiple purposes regardless of political ideologies or any other ideological divides i think the urdu sheer comes to the aid of a public speaker uh, where many other things uh, cannot serve that purpose uh, we've always had a tradition in our indian parliament of <clears throat> parliamentarians of across the political spectrum using urdu poetry to make a point to drive home a point to convey an idea and this has been ad nauseum and this has been used by politicians both north and south of the vindhyas it's not just something that is typical to people from the punjab or from the uh, up bihar states uh, but also from states where urdu and hindi is not their native language i mean uh, uh, yes. our prime minister mr modi uh, used a share of uh, nida fazli in parliament once safar mein safar mein to hogi correct चलोटली can be compressed into this haiku like two line uh, <laughs> uh, couplet you know and those two lines can convey sometimes far more than a bhashan absolutely i think that is some assurance to urdu lovers like ourselves who root for the language and hope that it stays as you know meets the pop culture standards as well so um quickly moving to a um, question on still on urdu writing and but uh, i'm referring to the part 4 of um, your book but you don't look like a muslim rakshanda where you've given these beautiful examples of uh, glorious literary history the geeta in urdu and so many more right um so it, it's fantastic i think we need information like this to go out there um to the youngsters to be aware about how syncretic the literature in itself could be and uh, while i know that we we address you address this for a bit that we always tend to use urdu writers and muslim writers interchangeably or often do but i was wondering when i was yeah. reading um you know these collection this collection here that why is it or is it you know a lack of um awareness at our end that we haven't read 
से अबाउट साइटिंग ऑफ द ईद का चांद जैसे है इन ग्रेट हिंदी पोएट्री और द बैटल ऑफ करबाला वाई इज इट दैट द अदर वे राउंड डिड नॉट हैपन और इफ इट हैपन इज इट जस्ट आर इग्नोरेंस लाइक वाई डेंट हिंदी राइटर्स राइट अबाउट इवेंट्स और माई स्टोन और इम्पोर्टेंट थिंग्स इन द लाइफ ऑफ अ मुस्लिम ऑफ अ सर्टन जेनरेशन इट वॉज इन सो दे वर राइटिंग ग्रेट uh understanding and depth of understanding uh there was a certain generation let's say our grandparents generation uh where non muslim writers uh they could be punjabi they could be from uh, up rajasthan bihar who were not muslim but were writing of let's say events of the karbala they were writing marsias um uh kartar singh duggal and one other name a punjabi writer whose name i'm missing for now but who had written extremely devotional marsia form of poetry which is centered around the events of karbala uh, there were others also who were writing uh, with knowledge and understanding of events that were specific to islamic history but uh, uh, but they were writing about it with great devotion as recently as somebody whom we lost during the first wave of the covid um, uh, gozar zutshi sahab who was a kashmiri pandit who lived in delhi who at every urs of hazrat nizamuddin would produce a naat in praise of uh, nizamuddin aulia so that tradition was there i am uh, um, not able to see that to a, in a very healthy form now but <laughs> a recent uh, re- till in at least in living history this was pretty much uh, uh, a two way relationship right right yeah and i can't um, help but think of uh, children's literature that's a field i'm in and i would i i would absolutely love it if our kids knew as much about some of these key things um about eid for example as much as they knew about christmas you know even just popular uh, simple writing for kids for adults all of them uh, it would be fantastic i think if those resources were created there is some both way interchange you know in urdu there has been a, a very a long tradition of writing for children for puffin penguin i am putting together a collection of urdu short stories for children it has very cute delightful stories by gulzar oh, wonderful wow we don't often appreciate is a very fine writer of children's fiction uh then the other you know like uh, the former pre- uh, president of india dr zakir hussain he had written these very cute stories for kids called abbu khan ki bakri and things like that wo puri jo kadhai mein se bhag gayi that you know very cute very native in a sense a very vernacular the frame of reference the vocabulary the situations everything was a very uh, 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 local and and regional you know which was good uh, because why should we have stories uh, where children are talking or seeing uh, images of uh, blonde haired blue eyed uh kids playing games that indian kids don't understand or relate to or or relate in a very artificial way you know so i think a whole bunch of these stories which look at regional experiences local experiences and talk in a in a very natural way about lived reality 
I think these uh, experiences need to be uh, talked Absolutely. about more uh, in the context of children's fiction. Absolutely. And maybe I think something after the podcast, I would love to just, you know, share some of these names that you mentioned. Nutkhat Badal, for example, you know, which mm-hmm. is a cute idea that there's a little runaway cloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, run away from because you know it it kind of rolled away from its mother cloud and how feeling now i think we need to also locate fiction for children in a completely a religious landscape where religion because i think the big bane of our lives is how religion is covering and clouding everything mm. why can't we have things which are just about nature or the world around us, but which don't have markers of religious identity, mm. you know? So right. that, I think, for a young child is very healthy. So I like stories such as this Nathkhat Badal because there is no marker of mm. that entire story, you know? I found that very healthy, very refreshing. Right. No, absolutely. And so good to know that this is out there. So it's just that I think more of us should be aware and pick up yeah. more of these books. <laughs> All right. I'm also... Sorry, go ahead. Just minor, minor comment, Rakshanda. The book sounds absolutely delightful. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it becoming available soon so that we can share some of these stories uh, with our kids. And on Gulzar Saab, I was I can't help but obviously mention Jangal Jangal Bad Chili Hai. So ah. you know, I mean that's such an iconic song. In our Durdarshan days, all heard it. So right. I think it's a national treasure, say, because he's able to pluck things from the world around us, and as Absolutely. I said, not give it any kind of identity which is specific to a people, a community, whatever, but is pan-Indian in such a natural way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. uh, And his vocabulary, his choice of setting, his imagination. I've had the occasion to travel with him extensively on these tours that we do where I'm in conversation with him in front of a live audience in the US and in Canada. And uh, sitting next to him on an aircraft is delightful. He will look up Mm -hmm. And he said, and he'll say, a propose nothing. He will say, Bhede hai, khel oh. Hai. <laughs> like oh, gosh. A flock of sheep oh, running gosh. each other. You know, so <clears throat> this whimsical, childlike way of seeing the world and... is very unusual and it's very refreshing. This is fantastic. No, and also very envious of you, Rakshanda, for making all these. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kamini and I spent a lot of time thinking what it would be like to be living with these people. Like, if we could just be a fly on the wall, do they always talk like this? Is it? No, because... he's such fun. I mean, it's a platform <laughs> to talk, but I can tell you it's like going on an extended holiday with your favorite. Wow. Uh, wow. <laughs> so-